Our dear brother David read for us from John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18, and Titus 2, verse 1 to 15. I'll be looking specifically this morning at verse 11 and 15. There's two points I want us to, to look at this morning. The purpose, so firstly, the, fir- the purpose of God's grace. And secondly, the personification, the, the person of God's grace. So let's remind ourselves of the reason why Paul wrote this letter in Titus. We've been going through Titus over the last few months, uh, every five to six weeks or so. Uh, so let's read um, chapter one, verse five. This is one of the reasons why. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we see two things that Paul identifies as primary reasons for his written communication. First of all, leadership. And secondly, an ordered Christian community. So leadership, Paul tasks Titus to appoint elders, that's leaders with good character, a good reputation amongst the people. Men devoted to God, men devoted to sound doctrine, willing and able to care for God's people. Secondly, an ordered community, an ordered Christian community. See, many deceivers during this time Empty talkers were causing disorder amongst the body of believers in Crete. They were causing some to turn away from the truth of God. And Titus was instructed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Why? To aid these Cretan Christians in not only holding fast to the word of truth, but also rebuking those who contradict it, those who speak contrary to the truth. And so we spent a few sermons examining how sound doctrine, which is healthy instruction, how that plays out in the body of Christ, the church of God. And so we remind ourselves again of those instructions in Titus 2, 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. 
These verses serve to remind us that God has given men and women roles and functions that will build up other Christians and impacts how others around them live. It's telling us that discipleship, discipleship is not left only to pastors, but also that a person's character is hugely important as well as how they serve others. See, to be gifted is great, but character is what adorns the gift. So what are the benefits of Christian duty and character? Well, Paul gives three benefits when we look at verse 5 in chapter 2. See, a godly woman, a wife, prevents the word of God from being reviled, from being criticised in an abusive manner. We see in verse 3, verse 8 rather, someone who models, and Paul is speaking here to Titus, he's saying to model, someone who models good works puts an opponent to shame so that they may have nothing evil to say about the followers of Christ. So Paul instructs Titus here to be a model of integrity, of, in, of dignity and sound speech. And the third benefit, verse 10. See, a godly worker adorns the doctrine of God our Saviour. That is, making the good news attractive by how we live, by godly living. Now, that's just a quick recap of what we've been talking about these last few months. And Paul has outlined how believers should live in accordance with the word of God. We're reminded that spiritual maturity is not marked by our age at all. Spiritual maturity is not marked by our age. I want you to consider something. If someone you know and love dearly said, you need to stop sinning. Your way of living is sinful. You need more self-control. You need to be sober-minded. You don't take care of your home as you should. Stop slandering people. You need to stop arguing with your boss. You should submit to your husband more. You need to love your wife more, bro. It really just sounds like instructions, doesn't it? Which often doesn't change that person. That's just instructions. It doesn't change their behaviour. And in fact, calling out sin in others sometimes means that they turn the table on us. They say to us that you're not really gracious the way you're speaking to me. In fact, you're being judgmental. But let's take a step back for a moment. Why are Christians to be sober-minded? Why are we to be self-controlled? Why should we love others? Why should you not be a slave to much wine? Why is cross-generational discipleship so vital? Older women to younger women, older men to younger men. Why should we be well-pleasing at work? The answer lies in chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. 
in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God, of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And Paul says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so verse 11, we see it relates to what the grace of God brings. Verse 12 speaks of the sanctifying work of grace to do away with the old man we were talking about earlier and to live a regenerated life in Christ. Verse 13 looks to the second appearing of Jesus Christ. And finally, verse 14 reveals how we are saved and kept by the grace of God. But Paul is not only concerned about the works of a Christian. Having given many directives, as we read earlier, and instructions, he then reveals what underpins, what underpins our Christian work and service in verse 11 to 14. Having revealed that the grace of God is what saves all people in verse 11. It's not until we get to verse 14, he describes how we are saved. We think, why? Why does he wait that long? And we'll find out in a moment. So, like I said earlier, this sermon begins a series on the grace of God. And our focus this morning is particularly on verse 11 and 14. We'll look at verse 12, 13 and 15 another time. Two things to help us this morning. We want to answer two questions. Number one, what is the purpose of the grace of God? We'll see that in verse 11. Secondly, who is the grace of God? Verse 11 and 14. Let's look at this first point. The purpose of the grace of God. Verse 11 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In the Greek, this phrase actually begins with the word appeared. So if we were to, if we were to read this in the Greek, it would read something like this. It appeared. The grace of God bringing salvation to all men. So verse 11 reveals the purpose of the grace of God. The grace of God has come to bring salvation for all people. We will see what, we, what this signifies in a moment. But before we look at the purpose of God's grace, we need to know what it is. We need to define what grace is. Grace is derived from a Greek word, charis. This is the grace of God and not the grace we extend to others. It's from God. How do we know this? Chapter 1, verse 14 says, Paul writes, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Grace from God. In 2.11, we are now told that this grace is not only from God, but of God. See, God's grace is often termed unmerited favour, which is correct, which is co correct, but specifically it is the free gift it's the free gift of God's eternal, loving, 
kindness and favour to unworthy people. Why? Shown by his giving of spiritual and eternal blessings. The grace of God we know from Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works. This grace of God is written here in the past tense. Paul is saying this grace has already occurred. This grace has already come. But then in verse 13, he goes on to say, we are waiting for a blessed hope. That is now what Paul, um, John Piper talks, that future grace to come. There's a grace that's come and there's a future grace that's coming when Jesus Christ returns. The appearance of grace is the coming of salvation. Grace is giving freely and we cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. If we were able to work for grace, it would only make us worthy of it. It would nullify its definition. Grace is no longer grace if we have to work for it. See, the purpose for which the grace of God has been revealed is so that all people may be saved. The Bible said God desires that all people be saved. But this is not saying that everyone in the world will be saved. It's not saying that everyone in the world will receive the gift of salvation, but rather that one, salvation is for all people, all people groups, all nations, all creeds. So that means we don't just evangelise the people that look like us. I used to do that once upon a time. Secondly, salvation is for every sinner. There is no one exempt. There's no one that the hand of God cannot save. There is no sin that the grace of God cannot pardon. And that's why we don't give up on anyone. The appearance of the grace of God brings salvation for all people. Salvation is all by grace. And the grace of God is for salvation. What does this salvation mean? Salvation means to save, to rescue. All people need salvation because we are all sinners. Our very nature, when we enter into this world, is to rebel against God. We are undeserving of God's grace. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by the gift of grace, by his grace as a gift. What are we saved from? Well, we're saved from God's wrath. This is a vertical aspect and horizontal. We're saved from God's wrath. God's pronounced judgment on sin. And so when we're saved, we're saved from his wrath, his judgment. But also we're saved horizontally. We're saved from our sin, our flesh. We're saved from the world. We're saved from Satan's dominion and hold. We're not just saved and just left by ourselves. The Bible says we're saved to someone. Whom are we saved to? God's grace saves sinners to be with him, with God for eternity. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See, God's grace brings salvation. The almighty, the everlasting God 
bring salvation to rebellious sinners. He came to us so that we can be with him. Otherwise, how can we ever have a hope of heaven? Only him coming, humbling himself in Christ. And so when I think of what the Lord has done for me, I grew up in a Christian home. I knew God's word. From a young age, my parents taught me day and night. We did fellowship regularly at church. From a young age, they said, you're going to become a pastor. That's what they said. And so I grew up with this idea that just because you know God's word, then you're saved. And so whilst I was in the confines of my parents' home, it was fine. I did all the right things. But then I went off to uni, the real testing time of my faith. Are you going to live how you live with your parents when you're now on your own? And I failed that test. Why? Because people, people said to me, oh, but you're, you're, you're good, aren't you? You're nice. I believe that lie. The reality is that nice does not save. You have to be new. You have to be new. You need a new heart. Because when you go into a new environment that is not your comfort zone, that is the true test of whether you believe what you know. Whether what you know has come to your heart. I went astray, but God's grace kept me. God's grace kept me. The appearance of the grace of God brings salvation by moving us from deadly situations why? And brings us into eternal life. Eternal life with the God, our maker, the God of heaven and earth. He translates us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvellous light, the kingdom of God. We don't need to be enticed by the, what the world offers. It does not satisfy. It really doesn't. Why do we need rescuing? We will now look at point two. The first point was the purpose of the grace of God. Our second point this morning is the person of the grace of God. I said earlier that Paul initially states what the grace of God does. But he waits a few verses. So he states it in verse 11. But he waits a few verses to then say it, to say how we are saved by grace in verse 14. And so when we think of this, the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, past tense, bringing salvation for all people. We see that's a continuous present tense, being saved. Why? The grace of God never runs dry. From its appearing, it continues to bring salvation to all sinners, effectually called by God. That is God's grace means it's irresistible. Only God can do it. Only God can woo your heart and bring you close to him. You cannot resist when the God comes calling. God's grace will surely accomplish Salvation in all who God's, God has called to himself, who God has called to be his people. The grace of God saves. 
But the grace of God also keeps, keeps us. And this is important and directly answers the question, why do we need saving? We need saving because we need to be rescued from lawlessness. The grace of God has reached out to rescue sinners like me, like you, in order to be in Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is not only the reality of God's eternal favour and kindness to undeserving sinners, but grace is a person. Grace is a person. That person is Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is the personification of God's grace. Read with me again verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled life a self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works see Paul writes to remind Titus and the Cretan Christians here, and also us today. He reminds us that we're living between two points in history. One, that in verse 11, we're living at a point where Jesus, between the points of Jesus has appeared. Jesus is the grace of God, has appeared. But also another point where the appearing of the glory of the great and savior, of great saviour, Jesus Christ, that's his second coming. We're living between these two points. And so Paul has in mind the incarnation of Jesus as the appearing of God's grace. And then later on he describes the second appearing of Jesus as his second coming. And so when you read verse 14, it's in the context of the incarnation. That's Jesus coming to be like us, the God-man, the appearing of the grace of God. So Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation. When he appeared, he brings salvation. He has brought salvation. And so this is further confirmed when we read chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness, that's grace. When that appears, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Grace is a person. You and I need to be saved from lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We've inherited this sinful nature from the fall. Imagine a school with no rules. You arrive the time that you want. You dress the way you desire. No head teacher, no teachers. Imagine driving with no rules on giving way at the roundabouts. No traffic lights, no laws regarding certain standards of road surfaces. I think I know a country like that. <laughs> My point is, just as lawlessness brings chaos, violence, injury, spiritual lawlessness brings rebellion, rebellion to God, disobedience to God. God's holy law that 
can only result in spiritual violence, spiritual harm, spiritual and physical death to those who are not rescued from their sins. Sin has its own punishment. That's death. Sin has its own punishment. The wages of sin is death. God is a divine lawgiver. And James reminds us in James 4.12, it states, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Only someone who is perfect, who is righteous, righteous and judge, just, can bring salvation. Jesus is that person of saving grace. He embodies saving grace. He is the grace that has appeared to us. There are three gracious works of Christ that we see in verse 14. Three gracious works of Christ that we see in verse 14. Number one, Jesus gave himself, the Bible says. Jesus gave himself. He gave of himself. He freely offered himself his life to sacrifice his life on the cross for sinners, for myself and for you. He lived the life, a perfect life that we can live. He laid down his life for us. Number two, Jesus redeemed and redeems all of us from all lawlessness. That means he can pay and he does and has paid for our sins by his own blood. Jesus, by his death on the cross of Calvary, satisfies the wrath of God. Why? How? By ransoming us. Us that were deserving of death. Yet he sets us free. Redemption not only from salvation, but from the act of sin, but also from the effect and punishment of sin. But Jesus, does, Jesus redeems not just from some sin, but all lawlessness. And so we see that Jesus saves to the uttermost. And finally, number three, Jesus purifies us, as we read there in verse 14. Jesus purifies us. For himself. A pure heart is what is needed to be holy. Just as iron must be erased of all its impurities in order to become still, we also must be purified. Our hearts must be purified so that we can stand righteous before the holy God. And so we see that the person of grace is Jesus Christ, who has come to save us. But Paul exalts even more so. He says that sinners are transformed for two things, according to that verse 14. Firstly, to be a people for his own possession. Jesus redeems us to be a people for his own possession. That's an amazing thing. Sinners like you and I are no longer bound and shackled by our sins, Satan and the world system. Those addictions and those things that held us bound are free. We now stand in Christ to be his own possession. Once we were the kingdom of darkness, but now we've received the pardon. And that pardon, once received, means we're in God's kingdom immediately. The kingdom of light. 
See, God is committed to making you and I like his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation does not make you a better version of yourself. It doesn't make you look better on the outside. It just doesn't make you only a nice person. Salvation makes you a new person in Christ. You have been adopted into the family of Christ. You have a new identity. Your name has changed. You could say that you now, we now all share, those who are in Christ share the same surname. Once Allah sinner, now Allah saved. We're now part of a new family. You have been reconciled. No longer an enemy of God, but God's very own son and daughter. Because you are his possession. And because you are his possession, he will never let you go. He will never let you go. You are eternally secure in the Savior's hands and under the shadow of the Almighty God, the Lord of hosts. And secondly, verse 14 says that Jesus has saved us to be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. So we are his possession, but also he has saved us and redeemed us to be zealous for good works. And so we return to this notion of Christian practice and work. All the Christian works in verse 1 to 10 are predicated on the grace of God appearing. Salvation brought forth in Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says those who know their God will do exploits. Those who know their God will have much energy for God. All true Christians are commissioned for gospel work. And the grace of God compels one to work heartily as unto the Lord. If it had not been for Christ redeeming us, we too would have been like the Cretans in chapter 1, 12 to 16. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, unfit for any good work. But instead, we can praise God for his glorious grace, for his work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I pray this is you this morning. Are you zealous to know God? Are you zealous for the things of God? Is God your God? Is God your God? Or are you still trying to work to save yourself? Therefore, denying the grace of God, the free grace of God. As we close, what should you take away from this message? What does the appearing and the appearance of the grace of God reveal? The appearance of the grace of God is salvation, firstly, for all people. But it's also a warning for all people. If you don't know this grace of God, it means sadly you will suffer the condemnation and the judgment and the punishment of your sin. Don't be bound. Don't be possessed by your sins. Don't fool yourself that your good works will not bring you, your good works will not bring you any closer to this living God. Why would you reject the free gift? Of salvation? Why would you reject the free gift of God's grace given to save man? 
Why would you reject the assurance of a blessed hope, a blessed future? Christ is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He takes away your sin and my sins. Your sins have been forgiven if indeed you are trusting in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus, today. Remember, remember the law was given, as we read in John 1. The law was given by Moses, through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The truth of Jesus will either be a stumbling block for you or be that very thing that builds you up. It will either be a stumbling block or it will build you up. How should we respond to the grace of God? Three T's to help us this morning. We must thank God. Firstly, we must thank God. Thank God that salvation is all the work of grace. You don't have to work. I don't have to work to get to heaven. What a freeing thing that the Lord God, the almighty God, has come to be with us, to give us salvation. We don't need to work for it. The Bible says in Isaiah 9 that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He does this. Not us, not our power, not our own strength. And so it's a, it's a reason to thank the Lord. Number two, we need to be taught by the grace of God. The Bible says here in verse 12 that the grace of God trains people. The grace of God trains God's people. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives, upright and godly lives in the present age. Like we said earlier, we're living in between two points in time. But we also hear this present time looking forward to when Jesus will return. How is the grace of God teaching you to renounce sin? Are you growing in renouncing sin? Are you growing in fleeing from sin? See, a mark of a true believer is growing in holiness and godliness, without which no one will see God. <coughs> Number three, teach grace to those God has put in your life. So teaching the grace of God to others, it's in the context of verse 1 to 10. It's directly the outcome of living by the grace of God. When we live by the grace of God, when we understand and know it, when we cherish it, it we can only share of the grace of God to teach others. It just overflows from us. The gospel then becomes central in our lives, central in leadership, in the church. Central leadership at home. Central in our lives, our, at work and at home. R.C. Sproul once said this. We need to do more than sing amazing grace. We need to be repeatedly amazed by grace. I wonder, are you amazed by grace this morning? Does it wow you? Are you thankful for what the Lord has done in your life? See, grace allows us to look back to the incarnation of Christ with awe and gratitude. The work of grace is supernatural. But it will always be demonstrated in the outworking of good works. Let the gospel of grace be evident in your home. Demonstrate 
the character of Christ with your spouse, with your children. Let the gospel of grace soften your heart in disagreements and difficult relationships with others, even striving between fellow Christians. It's an opportunity for us to show the grace of God. Is your boss at work just plain difficult to deal with? Call to remembrance the gospel of grace, living out patient and long-suffering and other virtues taught in the Bible and God's word only serves to show others the gospel of grace by how you live it. Paul encourages slaves to make much of the gospel of grace, whatever your circumstances, he's saying. Beloved, rest in the comfort of the grace of God to sit you in the heavenly places. The gospel demands a response. If you've been saved by grace, your outlook of life must change. It must change. You can't sit on the fence. You cannot sit on the fence. You cannot remain the same. You cannot turn to the old man. The Bible says he's like turning a dog returning to his vomit. You are a new creation in Christ. If you do not know Jesus as Lord this morning, the gospel demands a response from you too. It demands a response. You will give an account of every word, of the way you lived your life, of every deed before the holy and righteous God one day. Be free from the wrath of God now. Embrace and know this grace of God that's come in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.